You are listening to the IFH Podcast Network. For more amazing filmmaking and screenwriting podcasts, just go to ifhpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast, episode number 270. Life is like a B-movie. You don't want to leave in the middle of it, but you don't want to see it again. Ted Turner. Broadcasting from a dark, windowless room in Hollywood, when we really should be working on that next draft. It's the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast, showing you the craft and business of screenwriting while teaching you how to make your screenplay bulletproof. And here's your host, Alex Ferrari. Welcome, welcome to another episode of the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast. I am your humble host, Alex Ferrari. Now, today's show is sponsored by Bulletproof Script Coverage. Now, unlike other script coverage services, Bulletproof Script Coverage actually focuses on the kind of project you are and the goals of the project you are. So we actually break it down by three categories, micro-budget, indie film market, and studio film. There's no reason to get coverage from a reader that's used to reading tentpole movies when your movie's going to be done for $100,000. And we wanted to focus on that at Bulletproof Script Coverage. Our readers have worked with Marvel Studios, CAA, WME, NBC, HBO, Disney, Scott Free, Warner Brothers, The Blacklist, and many, many more. So if you need your screenplay or TV script covered by professional readers, head on over to CoverMyScreenplay.com. Have you ever wanted to learn from a Hollywood blockbuster screenwriter or even an Oscar winner? Well, I wanted to put together a free three-day screenwriting video series taught by legendary screenwriters David Goyer, from who wrote The Dark Knight, Nia Valdouras, who wrote The Big Fat Greek Wedding, Oscar-winning Callie Corey, who wrote Thelma and Louise, and Oscar winner Paul Haggis, who wrote Casino Royale. If you want access to this free class, head over to bulletproofscreenwriting.tv forward slash free. Well, guys, today on the show, we have author Austin Trennick. And he has written the mammoth volumes that are called The Canon Film Guide, Volume 1 and Volume 2. And if you guys don't know what Canon Films is, please do yourself a favor. Google Canon Films, look up some trailers, and you will be just giggling with joy because it is some of the most beautiful 80s schlock stuff ever created from Over the top with Sylvester Stallone's The Arm Wrestling Movie, which is insane, to Masters of the Universe with Dolph Lundgren, Bloodsport, ninjas were basically brought in by canon film. The concept of ninjas in movies were brought in by canon films. Break Into, The Electric Boogaloo, and so, so many more. I mean, Chuck Norris, Charles Bronson, it's amazing. And Austin and I took a nice trip down memory lane going back into the 80s, late 70s, early 80s, in the heyday of Canon Films, what they did, how the business was of how they did what they did, the creative decisions, and how they eventually fell and did not make it past the late 80s, early 90s, what films and what the film was or the few films was that literally took them under. It is a fascinating conversation. So if you want to go down little bit of film history and have a whole hell of a lot of fun. Enjoy my conversation with Austin Trentnick. I'd like to welcome to the show Austin Trentnick. How are you doing, Austin? I'm doing very well. Thank you for having me on, Alex. Thank you for coming on, man. I, I you know, you reached out to me about your new book. Hold on. I need to work out just to get this up. It's the Canon Film Guide, 
volume two, uh, 1985 to 1987. This, uh, out of all the guests I've ever had, yours is by far the thickest book I've ever had on the show. Uh, and this is, by the way, part two. So that means there's another part one, which is as big, if not bigger than that. And for everyone listening, if you if you want to learn about Canon, Canon Films, the 80s, amazing film studio, sit back and relax because we're going to be talking about one of my favorite parts of the 80s and, and the 80s growing up because uh, I'm not sure if you know this or not, Austin, but I worked at the video store in 88 to 93, I think I was going mm -hmm. there too. And uh, I saw all of these boxes. And as I was skimming through, because God, I can't read it all. But as I was skimming through the book, I was like, saw that one, saw that one, saw that one. And if I didn't see the movie, I remember the cover. And mm -hmm. the boys were very good at putting the cover together. But if, all right. So for everybody listening, Austin, uh, the first question is, can you tell everybody what Canon Films was and why are we talking about them all these years later, because there's a lot of film studios that were around in the 80s. Uh, there was Orion Pictures. There was, you know, the New World. New World. There's so many, you know, really great. But why is Canon, what is Canon? How, why does it have this kind of grab on the zeitgeist, as you will? Well, Canon is a company, the, as far as what we think about, usually when people refer to as Canon, they're looking at Canon in the 1980s. When it was under the command of, two uh, Israeli cousins, uh, producers named Menachem Golan and Yoram Globus, who had bought the company in 1979 and started pumping out these films in 1980. And these started as really exploitation pictures, low budget, very low budget movies that they start out. But those snowballed really quick. The movies got bigger. They had some success. They were able to make basically bigger and better movies and more and more films. This was a company that very much recognized that there was a market, especially at the time, 1980, 81, 82 market in the video stores. Um, rentals were new home video, and there's a really a, a big space for content. They need, stores needed to fill those shelves, and Canon was happy to help do it, as well as cable. Cable had, especially premium cable, had hours and hours of space to fill. So Canon was a company that, under Golden Globus, would sell movies to these markets primarily, before they'd even made them, they would take big books full of ideas, big spreads in Hollywood Reporter and Variety, and they would wait till enough companies had agreed to buy the movie and they would go and make it. So this is a company that could make films very, very fast. And because of how they did the films, the quality wasn't always there. These weren't always great movies, but <laughs> to, say, to say the least, <laughs> <laughs> but they were entertaining. And if you're a fan of especially B movies, a lot of a lot of great magic can happen when a movie is shot for half the budget it needs and half the time it needs. Um, this was a company that could have an idea marketed at the Cannes Film Festival in May and have it in theaters that fall. So that was how quickly Golden Globus worked. But People know them nowadays. They remember them now for you know, their, their eight ninja films, their 10 movies with Chuck Norris, the eight movies they made with Charles Bronson, discovering, uh, discovering Michael Dudikoff and Jean-Claude Van Damme. These were guys who, Cannon's bread and butter was this sort of low to mid-budget action movie. And if you were in the video store, especially in the action section, but really oh. 
Yeah, you couldn't go anywhere at a video store when probably when you worked there without being able to spin around and knock five or six cannon boxes off of a shelf, no matter where you were standing at the video store. It's it's pretty it, it it's pretty remarkable what these guys did, and you know I think it was uh, and I've I had I've had Sam uh, Sam Feinsberg Firstenberg Firstenberg on and Sheldon uh, Letich mm-hmm. on the show. We've talked Canon in the past, but. I think when we, we when I talked with Sam, I think it was the kind of like he was we were talking about because he was there with the boys almost from mm-hmm. the beginning. Uh, you know, he he was there with mm-hmm. the ninja movies and all that kind of stuff, which we'll get into in a minute. Yeah. Um, but it was a perfect storm uh, of these crazy guys making these crazy movies at a time when there's two new technologies coming on that needed content, and the studios were scared of VHS. And home video for for probably a good five or six years that they were they were they didn't want to put anything on VHS and cable was like ah what's this cable thing I'm not sure all this stuff so there was a a hole that Canon filled a lot of content in and it, would it be fair to say that once the studios decided to come in and start flexing their muscle Canon kind of lost. It's it lost its marketplace. Couldn't do what it was doing in the early '80s because in the you don't hear about Canon in the '90s, you know, right. not really. And then it, obviously after the '90s, you don't hear them at all, really. So mm-hmm. what happened to what was the kind of downfall of of Canon, and and why didn't it continue? Well, Canon, there were and again a perfect storm of things going wrong. There were several factors that contributed to it. One was that their movies got bigger. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And when you're spending 16 to 25 million on a movie that makes 5 million at the box office, that that's when it's trouble when you stop making these $5 million movies that you pre-sell for 10. It's they just got out of what they did very well. There was also a string of bad investments. Canon took a lot of money that they had earmarked, was given to them to invest in films. And they used that to buy 30MI, Elstree Studios, the studio where uh, Empire Strikes Back and Raiders of the Lost Ark was shot. And Canon only ended up shooting two movies there. But if you're a company that makes mid-low budget Chuck Norris movies, I don't know what you need with the biggest production facility in London. (laughs) But these... They, they they made a lot of bad investments with with money that they should have spent on movies that that bit them very quickly. And then, as as you mentioned, and in, in the, by the late 80s, the the studios were no longer afraid of these formats. And when you're competing in uh, on the shelves with the studio action films, with your your Dirty Harrys and your your other Clint Eastwood movies and yep. Lethal Weapon and things like that, that's suddenly when your low budget low budget action film just just isn't going to compete it isn't going to command the same same amount of real estate on a video store shelf or in cable rotation so they really got kind of pushed out in in those markets that they were early adopters early uh one of the earliest studios to really embrace yeah and it's 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 interesting because i was as i was scanning through your book i also saw like two i think at least two lethal weapon ripoffs uh, the one with Billy D. Williams, uh, and then mm-hmm. and then there was the obvious Indiana Jones ripoff with the uh, Richard Chamberlain. 
a firewalker with Chuck Norris and Louis Gossett Jr., which is kind of like a mix, I guess, of Lethal Weapon and Indiana Jones. It was kind of like this weird hybrid. Uh, I mean, as I'm saying it, it sounds awesome. <laughs> as I'm talking about it out loud, I'm like, you know what? I think I should go watch Firewalker again. And then you watch it for 15 minutes and you go, oh, okay, I understand. <laughs> I understand. I understand now. So so the, the success that these guys had uh, early on, well, the, the big thing that they, I think will be on their gravestone is they brought ninjas into the mainstream. They there sure was did. no talk of ninjas prior to, I think it's, a, it's not American Ninja. I think it was Revenge of the Ninjas. If, if I'm at, if or I'm Enter the Ninja. Enter the Ninja. Thank yes. You. Yeah, that was the first ninja movie that came in uh, into American audiences. Because before that, it was, but it's so hard to tell people what an impact that was because I had a ninja throwing star. Uh, I had a ninja outfit. I was eight, seven. Mm -hmm. I was going to ninja stores where there were ninja like nunchucks and, and throwing stars. And there was ninja schools. Like you could, like you could go to a jujitsu school. You can go to a ninja school and like, you know, train in the dark. It was like this, it was insane. But this was all started by the Cannon Boys when they brought the world ninja. And ninja had been around yeah. for <laughs> ever in Japan. Right. I mean, it, it's how long has nin, like ninjas, when did they first come into the into the world stage? Right? It's, it's what, like a thousand years ago? Like, yeah. I don't even remember. Well, before, during the samurai period. <laughs> right, exactly. They were kind of like the more sneaky, less honorable mm -hmm. samurai. The guys, uh, you got to do the dirty work, <laughs> right? They're assassins. They were mm -hmm. they were assassins. So they brought ninjas into the world. And, and can you explain to the audience what kind of, I mean, impact financially, you know, Enter the Ninja had to the point where they had, I, and then you could tell me how many other ninja movies. Did they make? Yeah, well, so Ninja did. Uh, Canon did two things with ninjas that really, I think, led to this explosion, this phenomenon, the ninja phenomenon of the eighties that led to you doing it just with a shirt swinging on strong and that was a they put ninjas front and center in the movie there had been a couple ninjas in movies the octagon chuck was one of his early ones he fought them but they looked like you know bad guy martial arts in pajamas they weren't the cool ninjas that we do in the 1980s they put them at the center and they made them awesome they got shokasugi to really come in he was the guy who was an expert he was a martial artist, but an expert on ninjas and brought a lot of the tools, a lot of the weapons, a lot of his students to help on, on these films. And Shokasugi played the bad guy in, in Enter the Ninja. But so cool. The movie opened with Shokasugi just demonstrating all of these different ninja weapons against a black screen. And really, it's they, these are the weapons that we associate with ninjas. This, this is something that to talk about the impact that Enter the Ninja had in 1981. Historically, a nunchuck. Chucks are not something you would ever associate with ninjas before that. That was not a weapon they would use. That's not really a stealth weapon. But Monarch and Galan, the colorful head of Canon Films, the director of Enter the Ninja, had seen that in Enter the Dragon. Of course, Enter the Dragon, Enter the Ninja, you can draw a little line there. And he wanted nunchucks in his movie, even if they weren't historically accurate. So those became part of that film. And now, you know, any kid who grew up with Ninja Turtles and who loved Michelangelo as their favorite character can thank Menachem Galan for making, turning nunchucks into one, a part of the ninja 
the ninja cannon really uh, with a single N. But the movie was, did very well. The sequel, directed by our friend Sam Furstenberg, did even better. And Canon continued really putting these out as fast as they could. Revenge of the Ninja followed Ninja 3, The Domination. Which is, which is a classic. I mean, let's just throw it out there right now. I know it's Quentin Tarantino's favorite, one of his top three favorite uh, uh, canon films. Is, yes. Is, is, is a, it's a, it's a, it's a Ninja <laughs> 3, a Revenge of the Ninja 3, whatever the hell, the Domination one. Yeah, uh, yeah. Which is like part Flashdance, part Exorcist, part Ninja movie. Yeah, a little bit of Poltergeist sprinkled and, in and, and, and a little bit of, <laughs> like, why not? That is just brilliance but then what i found fascinating is that he's like we need to throw an american in there and he's like you know what would be cooler than just having ninjas wow american ninja that would be kind of cool like a white guy doing ninja stuff and boy was he right i remember seeing Mm. american ninja in the theater (laughs) that's how old i am (laughs) and american ninja is a great film it turned michael dudikoff from being a you know minor comedy actor he had done bachelor party with tom hanks he was a friend of that and happy days and and you can see him in minor roles in the early 80s and then suddenly he's an action star not the top tier you know he's not in the same as your stallone or schwarzenegger but in the video stores people would you would he was a recognizable brand name by by the late 80s and yeah american ninja is an example of canon I, i like to call it canon magic they took a relatively low budget, but they shot this movie in the Philippines. They got a director like Sam Furstenberg who could work in the fast, the fast uh, limitations, the low budget and great, great stunt, uh, stunt choreographer. Just they really spent what money they had went onto the screen and it looked very cool. American Ninjas, what what impresses me is this is a lot of the same crew since they shot in the Philippines that had worked on Apocalypse Now. That that were trained for that movie had spent all that time three making years, that yeah, yeah, three years, yeah, three years for Francis, yeah, had gone through that gauntlet of fire, and then were sitting around in in the Philippines for a few years and got hired on these Chuck Norris movies, on these ninja films, um, over and over again in the in the mid eighties. And if if you look at any of those jungle movies that that Canon did, primarily shot in the Philippines, they look good, <laughs> and, and a lot of it is because they have this this crew that was available that was well-trained that could be hired for pennies on the dollar yeah compared to what in hollywood would have cost much much more yeah because they were yeah they did the mission the the missing in action series with chuck norris and Mm -hmm. and let's talk about chuck because i mean they did chuck do i'm trying to remember did chuck do any movies outside of canon like and because invasion usa and Mm -hmm. And uh, the mission uh, missing in action series, and uh, it was Octagon. That the Octagon was pre-canon. So Chuck had done some movies in the late seventies and early eighties, really low uh, low budget martial arts pictures, lower budget than canon, actually. And but he was somebody he had, he was a former karate champion at that point. He was well known as a for owning karate schools and having this sort of a celebrity in in the martial arts world, but. He wanted to be an actor and, you know, the, his, his early independent productions did fairly, fairly decent for, for sort of the grindhouse martial arts audience and venues that they played. But when he got to Canon, they took him, he was a, you know, in his mid forties at that point. Right. 
And he was my, he was my age. <laughs> For God's sakes, who's not? Yeah, gray. I mean, it was like he's my age at this point. Yeah. Yeah. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. He's a, a middle aged, retired, like ex karate champion. What? And Canon turned him into a box office star. He had number one movies with Missing in Action and Invasion USA for Canon and other movies that were huge when they came out, if, if not- Delta Force? Did he do Delta, Delta Force? Delta yeah. Force was with Canon. And <laughs> it was, it's something that, again, it wouldn't have, I feel like there are very few places that sort of magic could have happened other than a place that was run so fast and loose as, as Bronson. They gave him- a period to here in his 60s made him in this a, a guy also, who had been successful oh. start real quick because your internet's getting a little crunchy oh so. no yeah your internet's pretty 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 wonky right now honestly uh but you, your audio started to crack up so let's take it back to uh the chuck norris comment okay let me yeah i'm just making sure everything else is closed too okay um yeah yeah so, well chuck Okay, sorry. Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> Chuck Norris is someone who, when he came to Canon, he was in his mid-40s. He had several low-budget, moderately successful independent movies, but very small movies, martial arts movies. And as a 44-year-old, 45-year-old ex-karate <laughs> champion instructor, he became a box office star. He had number one movies in Missing in Action and Invasion USA and huge films like The Delta Force that, that came out with Canon. And again, this is a guy who was, was pushing 50 by the time he really reached his peak at, at, at Canon. It's, it's pretty remarkable, too, because I remember like Invasion USA, watching Invasion USA on HBO or Cinemax or something like that. And all my family was watching around, like sitting around watching it and it was like the coolest thing you'd ever seen in your life. It was just such a, I mean, I remember, but Chuck, really Chuck, you know, before there was before Canon Chuck and after Canon Chuck and a, after Canon Chuck, which is again, he's probably my age at that point in his mid forties, turned them into a, 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 comp a complete movie star. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, did Chuck, I mean, obviously Texas Ranger mm -hmm. was a, it's a monster, monster television hit. Uh, after this is years later, this, I think that was in the nineties, if I'm not mistaken, when mm. Chuck did that. And that was a good, that was almost like a good retirement plan for Chuck because he just went off. He's like, Oh, good. I'll just stay this one location. I'll just keep shooting these things. And they went on for like, what, a decade. I think that show went on for a decade or so. Yeah. And that was actually produced by Canon television. The very first set of episodes. Unfortunately, they were on their last dying gasp by Breath. the time that came out. Yeah. So that was really again something where if 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 the dominant if the chips fell slightly differently where we might still have a canon today but walker texas ranger came out just really as they were barely hanging on to and 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 if they would have texas ranger would have held them all would have definitely held them together mm -hmm. if if they would have been able to hold on to it but they it's interesting and it's a it's a lesson for people listening because they view they veer, they veered away from what made them successful. They started being bigger and bigger, and bigger because they're. I guess I'm assuming ego got into into place and like I'm gonna buy L Street Studios. I'm gonna 
be as big as Warner Brothers. And I, I already saw, you know, you could start seeing it in the movies that they were attempting to make, you know, so like, you know, and I, cause I don't want to skim over these movies because they're such great, amazing things, but Superman for mm-hmm. the quest for peace, um, arguably just one of the most horrific things I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's up there with the room. It is just one of those things that you watch and you just like, what? And I know Christopher Reeve only agreed to do it because it was something to do about nuclear. He wanted to make a commentary mm-hmm. about nuclear proliferation and and how it needed to stop. And he had, I think, he didn't direct it, but he had a lot of creative control mm-hmm. over the project. Is that a correct? Is that a fair statement? That's correct. Canon basically checked three boxes for Christopher Reeve, who a few years earlier had gone on the record. He'd gone on every talk show saying he would never play Superman again. He backed out of his cameo in Supergirl movie, even because he was so done with Superman. But they offered him creative control of the plot. Um, he also got to direct some of the B unit, the, some of the action scenes. They gave him a lot of money that, that played into it, obviously. But they also, they took on basically a pet project of his called Street Smart. Oh, yeah. I remember that was a good project. Yeah, too. a great a movie. Good movie. Morgan, <laughs> and it's, a young Morgan Freeman or a younger Morgan Freeman. Yes, a 50-year-old Morgan Freeman, actually. Um, his first Oscar how, nomination. How many? How old is Morgan? Jesus. I mean, he uh, he's uh, God. He is God. He literally is God. He doesn't die. He's just there. <laughs> he just keeps going and going. God bless his heart. No, because I remember him in Street Smart. And that was a mm-hmm. dark, edgy film for Christopher Reeve at the time. Mm-hmm. Morgan Freeman, I think, ages one year for every 10 that actually passed. Cat years. By it's the like cat years. It's yeah. like cat years. It's like cat years. <laughs> he... He so Street Smart was a movie that Christopher Reeve wanted to be disassociated with Superman. He was afraid of being only being seen as, you know, this man in a cape and tights. And one of the one of the things he thought would get him away from that was having a critical and commercial success that was something that was very different. So Street Smart was a role that it was a script that he'd had for a while and he took to canon because he wanted to get it made. It's about a uh basically a journalist who lies about a story. He, he, he makes up his story in this magazine profile, and it leads to this sort of great success for him. He becomes a television reporter. He gets his own news show. He's the talk of New York City, but it's all based on a lie. And it's a lie that closely resembles the story of a, the life story of a character played by Morgan Freeman, a, a pimp named Fast Black, who is on, on trial at the time for for homicide, for, for killing somebody. And Morgan Freeman's character sees this as an opportunity to sort of give him an alibi, use Christopher Reeve's character's notes to give him an alibi. And it's a, it's a great film about these two characters who are just sort of using each other. And they're both awful people. Christopher Reeve plays a character who could not be further away from Clark Kent. Right. They have the same profession, but one is just despicable and the other one is this symbol of everything that is great and uh, in 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 humanity in our our world and it is a it's a movie that canon made for a very low budget and was very well done it was very well reviewed and it's it won it it earned morgan freeman his first oscar nomination i'm not sure offhand out of how many but many many oscar nominations that have come since but unfortunately it came at a time where where Canon, when they had a movie that was 
good, I want to say good in the, I guess, critical sense that um, get, it's getting great reviews, it's getting awards buzz and things like that. Canon did not know really what to do with that. They couldn't, right. <laughs> they couldn't unlike unlike the Weinsteins, unlike the Weinsteins with Miramax, mm -hmm. they knew what to do with that. They built the whole, their whole, the 90s around, you know, I th in, in many ways, I think Miramax is almost a sequel to Canon, but a, you know, a, a higher quality sequel, uh, bringing in foreign films and doing, and, you know, we'll do the disclaimer, Harvey is an evil, horrible human being, but what that company did in the 90s mm -hmm. cannot be ignored uh, mm -hmm. without question. And I think it's almost like that because they knew exactly what to do. But and that's another thing is like we all make ha ha ha, you know, Chuck Norris and ninjas and all that stuff. But they made some really good movies. Runaway Train, mm -hmm. 52 Pickup, uh, Fool for Love, you know, with Kim Basinger and, and um. Sam, uh, Sam Shepard. I mean, the, 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 and the list goes on. There's a, a bunch of great movies, right? Yeah, this is a company that, again, Canon, their their bread and butter was these action, were these action movies, these ninja movies, these Chuck Norris films. But they would take that money and they would channel it into a lot of times projects from great filmmakers, classic filmmakers who couldn't get them made elsewhere. And that's where you have people like Robert Altman approaching them for Full for Love. You have Jean Cassavetes coming to them to make love streams because no other studio wanted to invest right. money in it. Made, and then John Frankenheimer as well. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, John Frankenheimer who had hit a rough patch in his his career there and came to Canon. And he, there, there are many examples of that. Runaway Train was a script that had been written by Akira Kurosawa in the 60s and had been translated and been floating around Hollywood for 10 years and more. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And Canon finally brought it to the screen. That championship season's a lesser known one from 1982, but it's a Pulitzer winning play by uh, Jason Miller, who this is a movie that had been with every studio and the project kept falling through. And Canon finally said, if you can make it on a Canon budget, we'll let you make it how you want it with, with who you want in it, if this is the, the amount of money that you have. So this is a company where not just filmmakers, but stars would who had these sort of pet projects like, like Reeve and Street Smart and uh, Catherine Hepburn and a project called um, Grace, Grace Quigley that she'd been trying to get made since the 70s. They felt safe to bring these projects to Canon especially by 83, 84, 85, when they really hit their peak. And Canon took chances. They took chances on, on movies that really the studios would not. And Because they were doing it on a budget, though. That's why, yes, right? They were doing it on a budget, and they were pre-selling it. They knew a star's name if they could sell Catherine Hepburn in a movie. Done. Yeah, they could sell that around the world. And they'd made their money before it hit you know, it went before the camera. And the studios weren't doing things like that because they didn't understand how to work in that kind of budget range. And I mean, when I think of Canon, I think of AFM, I think of the Cannes film market, mm -hmm. uh, those kind of, that arena is not where the studios play. That's where the, the budget of the craft service table mm -hmm. of the studio projects play. I mean, it, it mm -hmm. just, it, they don't understand how to make money in that world. Even to this day, you can't, can you imagine? Yeah. I mean, I've talked to I've talked to filmmakers mm -hmm. who are like, "How much did you make your movie for?" 
they go, oh, yeah, you, you know, I, I mean, I had, a, I did a low budget movie. It was like only 10 million. I'm like 10 million. Are you out of your, like the, the, the rest of us live in a, you know, sub 500,000, sub $100,000 budget <laughs> world right now to make independent films. But it was so, they were so smart. So they looked like they were taking chances, but they, these guys were really good businessmen until the ego ran away. And I think the, one of the biggest, the biggest one, there's two that come to mind, masters of the universe, mm -hmm. which is pure magic, <laughs> absolute pure magic. If, if no one's seen it, there's so much stuff going on there. It's like an onion. There's a lot of layers. Courtney Cox is in it, Dolph Lundgren, <laughs> Orko. I mean, it's just, just all beautiful and over the top. So I'll take both of them one at a time. So over the top, ridiculous concept. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely ridiculous. It's about an arm wrestling single dad who drives a truck across country and he's going to the arm wrestling championship and he's trying to bring his son along. It sounds on paper horrible. And to be fair, it, it is in many ways. But to this young man, for, for years afterwards, when I would get serious, I would turn my hat around. <laughs> and you know that business was about to get done. If the, it, 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 it just hit something so interesting in that, that age group where because you look at it now you're like are you dude seriously you have to lift, like turn your hat around and then that's where you get the extra force to beat whoever you're going against like it was just crazy but from at the time from i think it was sam who told me this it was sam or sheldon i forgot who uh, who it was but they they wanted sly at the peak of sly's power mm -hmm. i mean you're talking about 85 like it's mm -hmm you know, Rocky three and, and, and Rambo. And like, he is the biggest star of, in the world. And they offered him, I think they called him up and I think it, I forgot what the number was, but it was such a ridiculous number that Stallone said, listen, if you pay me 12 million bucks, I'll do your movie. And they showed up with, I think it's 12 million. You probably know better than I do. So please tell the story of, of over the top, sir. Yeah, that is correct. With $12 million, they made, for a brief period of time, they made Sylvester Stallone the highest paid actor for any one single, single film. And this was a project that, I mean, Sly, supposedly, I guess he wanted to do it. Um, it was something that the original script he, he liked, and it had sort of a, at the time, he was kind of catching a lot of flack for you know, Rambo toys being in store and all of his movies being so, so violent. And this is something that, thought he could point at and say, oh, this family film that I've done, you don't have to take your kids who love me to go see Rambo. You could take them to see this. So that was that was his uh, attraction to the project. Canon, they Sloan was the biggest star in the world, really, at that at that very that moment in, in in the 1980s. And especially for the types of movies that they they made. And they were willing to throw that much that much money at them. And it made a big giant splash this is something that as soon as stallone agreed to it canon took out the two-page ads in every trade and they would say welcome sylvester stallone to the canon family um making over the top shooting soon the problem was canon this was not a company that had 12 million dollars sitting around in cash they 
they would usually take that money and they would make you know, three ninja movies for that. So they actually, in reality, this is this Stallone exclusive was in papers. They sent him $500,000 as a retainer, as basically an option on, <laughs> on him doing this while they went out and then worked their butt off to sell, get, get the money, sell all the rights internationally, sell the product placement. There's a wonderful amount of product placement in that film from everything from car batteries to motor oil to brute cologne. Uh, it's it's everywhere in that movie. And then finally, they ended up getting Warner Brothers to come in and, and help distribute them. Distribute. With the distribution. Yeah. And with the distribution and also some of the financing, um, that $12 million is also what paid Stallone for Cobra. <laughs> a lot of people don't don't know that, is that what? $12 million ended up being, they ended up getting two pictures of it. Um, Warner Brothers did one. Who did Cobra? Cobra wasn't Canon, right? That was a Warner Brothers deal. That was Warner Brothers, but Canon has the Golden Globus uh, producers credit on it. And that is because of over the top. Um, Warner Brothers wanted to do Cobra. Stallone was in line to do over the top with them. But when this deal, they got Canon to wait. They like, push your shoot off by seven, eight months. So we can shoot Cobra and we'll pay, you know, we'll pay whole thing we'll, we'll pay this this amount and we'll get it done you can have your movie afterwards and over the top's a, a, a fun movie like I, as a kid i i loved it as well it was a movie that you know i wanted to arm wrestle all the time on my desk at school but the movie that stallone actually had a, i mean i guess any movie stallone is involved with he had a lot of input but he took and i'll pass at the script so it's interesting to watch this it changes greatly in that final Stallone draft. Um, makes it even more of a family-oriented movie, which is something I wouldn't expect. It's out a lot of the, as you're some, uh, there's more violence in the original scripts that Stallone out of it, which is um, interesting. But also he he directed Monaco directed it, and Stallone was there to advise. And if Stallone had a difference of opinion, they had an agreement shoot it both ways and stallone got final choice of which version so they would read a lot of the scenes and to his credit the Golan didn't have to go about that he's out he's like this mr stallone his, his movies have made how much money that he's directed he's won oscars he's he's very successful if he advice i'm going to listen what how how he's basically anyone asking them really like who was who was directing this but they essentially co-directed a lot, a lot of the scenes. You see it in the action. A movie that makes Armrest actually, I think, look kind of interesting on screen for a that is really two large, sweaty men grunting in hands for about 30 seconds. Oh, makes it look like, you know, a Rocky fight in, in, in the section. No, there's... Yeah, there's absolutely no question about it. You like that end sequence is absolutely a brilliant piece of filmmaking. Just the, the you know the lighting, the way the skin like it was. I mean, they, they used the star filter on it, so there's like the stars in the lights and it, the heat. I mean, they did a lot. And as as you're saying that, that makes all the sense in the world. That Sly would have just basically controlled the control that film. Uh, there's just no there's no question about it. And it is very family friendly. Like it's 
it's about a kid and his dad. I mean, the, the, the movie is about a kid and his dad. That's basically what the movie is about. It, it, it has to do with arm wrestling in the background, but it's just fa- it's one of those things. Was that the movie that started or was it Masters of the Universe is the, is the one that really started the downward spiral of canon? We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. It's really a one, two, three, because you have all in 1987 in the space of really six months, you have over the top Super War and then Masters Universe, all three of these movies that Canon spent a lot of money on and years of promotion. And they just, they were not hit. They were not the gigantic hits that Canon needed them to be to really going at that point. So that was, that was when a lot of the trouble really happened. I think I like to, I like to look at it as you look at the prices of stocks, <laughs> Canon stock at the beginning of 1987. And then the really September of 87, it's, it's, it's gone from trading from $30 to like under $4. Was that Canon? Was Canon a public company? They had a public sale in '86, so that was where a lot of this money that they spent on real estate <laughs> came from. Beyond, as well as like basically promises of loans from from banks. Wow. <laughs> so let me pause for a second. Your internet again is getting really, oh. really wonky, man. I'm so I'm, sorry. I'm I'm sorry about that. That's strange. I wonder. Make sure your connection is good. Or are you are you on Wi-Fi? Are you close? I to am the... on. I am on. I am on Wi-Fi. Yeah, there's there's nothing else on here. Oh, yeah. Your your audio is like kind of going on and off. Um. Okay. Uh. Okay. I'm back up to yeah the full bars and so. All right. Let's see if we can continue. We'll see how it goes. Um. Okay. So, so going to Masters of the Universe, which was a monster budget for them and a big, just a huge, I think one of the big, what was the biggest production they ever did? Was it Over the Top or was it Masters of the Universe? Well, Over the Top would have been the highest budget. Another one that was very close was Life Force. That was a $20 oh my God. dollar movie. <laughs> Life Force. Isn't that about, va- was, if it, wasn't that about vampires in space? And vampires from space, yes. Yeah, God, I, I vaguely remember that movie, but I remember like, that, but that had no major stars in it, and they spent that much money on it. They had no major stars, but they had John Dykstra doing special effects. They had a script by Dan O'Bannon. They had Toby Hooper directing. They had a lot of the team from Star Wars, Nick Maley and his his team doing the creature effects. This is the guy that helped design Yoda and the Cantina Band. This is all of that money went was spent on the screen. That that's a movie that for being a kind of silly movie about space vampires is beautiful. It's all sets. It's, it's all matte paintings. It's all shot with people actually on, on wires when you have the people going through space. It is just one of those movies as far as practical effects go. It's one of the last great showcases really for the, the mid to late 80s because soon, very soon after that, a lot of those things were going more and more digital, more and more computer being involved and that's yeah they had no stars because all of that money really was spent wow. on sets and effects 
And even then, I mean, I think that was one of the mistakes they made then. And I've, this is something I preach about all the time on the show is like, you need some sort of star power, the higher that budget goes up. And unless the star, because Toby Hooper wasn't, I mean, he's, yes, he's Toby Hooper, but he's not Spielberg, mm -hmm. you know, and even Spielberg, I'm not sure would have been able to pull that off. Uh, you know, like, you know, there's very few directors that had that kind of a Scorsese or Coppola or something might've had that kind of box office power back in the, in those days. But that's a mistake. They needed to, they, you know, if they would have put Chuck Norris in Life Force <laughs> or Michael Dudikoff in Life Force, it probably would have sold better. I'm just throwing that out there. <laughs> yeah. Had even just their ability to sell it abroad, if they had a name that they could pin to that film, I think would have helped a lot. But they had to sell it on the strength of the team behind the camera. And it's hard to sell a high concept sci-fi film releasing right. in the summer on 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 that sort of in 87 angle. competing with predator <laughs> competing with uh, lethal weapon like i mean the, the, you're talking about like really great years of 80s action sci-fi-esque mm. stuff coming out i mean there was good lord and i think that <laughs> You know, it's such a fascinating story to see how these guys in such a short period, within a decade, um, rise and start to tumble and fall within a pretty much of a 10 to 12 year period. It mm -hmm. was it was you could start watching it. And ego, I have to believe that ego had such a huge part to play in it just because they just wanted to become bigger and bigger. But they overextended themselves. They over leveraged themselves. To the point where if they would have just kept sticking to what they knew and maybe just amped into what they knew more, they could they could still be going today, uh, you know, in many ways, because these movies haven't gone away. You know, I remember walking into AFM for the first time and looking up at the giant poster hanging from the ceiling and it was, oh, it's Mike Tyson versus Steven Seagal. I'm like, well, there you go. You know. You know, and 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 by the way, let's go back for a minute uh, mm -hmm. to a movie called, uh, which I, from what I understood, was the one of the biggest cash cows ever in the canon, uh, canon, canon, <laughs> which was Breakin. Uh, the original, if it it was before Beat Street, if I'm not mistaken, mm -hmm. in the break dancing fad of of the, I think it was '85, '86 is when that came out. That 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 exploded and that had no stars in it, but it had breakdancing in it, and everybody wanted to know about breakdancing, and it exploded. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Breakin was a movie. It came out in May of '84. It okay. is the the idea behind it came in Canada uh, supposedly because Menachem Golan's daughter was on Venice Beach and saw the dancers and suggested it to him, and that was the story he always repeated. And they came up with the idea, and then Menachem that um beat street was in production it was already in production when he had this idea let's let's do ours let's do one faster let's get before beat street i think he heard out heard that beat street was coming out in june this is early 84 so they rush this they find the dancers they find basically bang out a script really fast they shoot it as fast as possible and they get it out in 84 it was the first one into theaters so hit that breakdance craze even though the idea came later than <laughs> Beat Street, it beat Beat Street to theaters, and it was a huge hit. It was the soundtrack the hit? The movie was 
you know, did spectacularly in, in theaters. And canon, of course, in two weeks of, of the movie coming out, had already had ads running in the trades for Breakin' 2. <laughs> the electric, Breakin the electric boogaloo, the greatest, the greatest title of all time. Yes. And they, that was going to be right for Christmas. So <laughs> they made two breakdance movies in the space of about 11 months from when the idea to make a breakdance movie came to when the sequel yeah. came out in theaters. And the thing that's in interesting about it is that Beat Street is a much better breaking breakdance movie. There's just no question. I mean, it's the dark, gritty. It's two different kinds of movie. Break-in is like more New York. And I was in I was living in New York at the time. So it was like more gritty New York, you know, in the subway, that kind of break that had a, the core message. There's it's dark, death, all that kind of stuff. And then break-in is kind of like the Disney, Disney-esque version of breakdancing, which is everyone's like. Haha, ha, we're in sunny California. It was all great. So it was a completely different vibe. And I think at that moment in time, I think people wanted to see the fun, you know, Ozone was it Ozone and yeah, Turbo. And, turbo, yeah, the Turbo guy. And then of course you, go, you gotta throw in the, you know, the cute ballet dancer who needs mm -hmm. to break dance and all this insanity on it. But there's one thing also uh about breaking that uh see, I have a lot of canon. Trivia, as, as you can tell, um, <laughs> I love it that that um, there was a there was a young star uh, who played an extra role in Break In, mm -hmm. which is genius to see. Yeah. It is Jean Claude Van Damme on the beach. I think it's on Venice Beach or something in the background while they're breakdancing. And he's just doing <laughs> this dancing <laughs> like the most awkward, weird dance and he's got like spandex on the 80s spandex on and he's a young he must have been what in his mid-20s young young very young Jean claude van damme in it we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor and now back to the show so i mean i remember seeing that for the first <laughs> time i remember hearing about it because after i saw blood sport I heard that he was in Breaking and I got Breaking and I was just scanning it till I found him on VHS. And I was like, oh my God. So can you talk this, tell the story of Jean-Claude and how he was dis discovered, if you will, and got mm -hmm. thrown into, because I also have a, a bit of Jean-Claude. I was, he was one of my, my favorite guys growing up. Wow. So it, we're talking about No Retreat, No Surrender, Black Eagle, mm -hmm. then came Bloodsport. And then Cyborg was in there somewhere. I think it was right afterwards. And then the studios got a hold of them and Double Impact and all those other ones that they did afterwards, which were, you know, Kickboxer and all that kind of cause great stuff. But Bloodsport was the thing that blew him up. Can you talk a little bit about how the Cannon Boys got a hold of, of Jean-Claude? So Jean-Claude came to the United States from Belgium wanting to become a movie star. He actually moved here with his his enemy, his nemesis in kickboxer, Tong Po, uh, mm -hmm. Michelle Kiss, they were best friends. They would watch martial arts movies, Bruce Lee movies together, and they moved together and they were roommates in Los Angeles as young, something aspiring actors. And John Claude is a very smart person. Like, I, he doesn't get enough credit for how, for that side of things, but he knew that he looked at Canon. It was a company that they were making these, these ninja movies, these, what they, he looked at what they did with Chuck Norris and saw that 
if he was going to break in and be one of these stars, that that Canon would be the company that could potentially do that for him. So he started going to the Canon offices every <laughs> every chance he had, and he would sit in the lobby. He would hang out when he wasn't working, when he was driving, working as a waiter and things at that time. He would wait for Golden Chris, and he would demonstrate his kicks. He would do his splits, or he'd wait and see Chuck Norris. Chuck Norris was someone who bought him early on in the in the Canon lobbies, and Chuck actually kind of hired him as an assistant for a while. Um, John Claude is credited for stunts on Missing in Action, and it was because he traveled along to uh, with with Chuck when he made that movie, and they would jog together, they would work out together. There's some great footage of um, John holding the the mats as Chuck Norris is kicking them, like very very early on at that age. And that's also how he ended up in as an extra in Breakin. You know, Canon was making that movie really fast. There's this Belgian kid hanging out, good-looking Belgian kid hanging out in their lobby. They're like, "Oh, come on, get in the get in the van. We need <laughs> we need dancers for this scene." And that's how things like that happen. But this went on for years and years. Finally, from what the story I got from Jean Claude, that's a preview for book three is that I guess Menachem really kind of just gave in from this kid sort of he harassing him. Harassing yeah, him. basically, yeah. Trying to become a canon star by harassing him, blitz and kicking him at him in, the, in his lobby and brought him up to his office. And Jean-Claude, you know, he does it. He says it and his, he still has that scent where he's like, I get, in the sh- I get up to Menachem's office. I take off my shirt. I start doing the splits. And Menachem at that point says, you're... You know, you have to think of, I don't think you're going to be a great star, but I have this project. He gets out the script for Bloodsport and Van Damme is on a plane to Hong Kong to, to shoot Bloodsport. But what's interesting about Bloodsport is that's a movie that sat on a shelf for a quite a while. It was shot in 86 and it was released in early 1988. Mm-hmm. And this was a movie that when they came back from Hong Kong, uh, Golden Globus saw the initial shot, which I've never seen. I would be very interested if it still existed in some form, but they thought it was unreleasable. They thought the movie, and, and looking at the movies, and it did release. <laughs> to, if Golden Globus judged something unreleasable, it, it, it must have been pretty rough. But that broke Jean Claude's heart. He did, but then he went on to do other things in the meantime, but some did. Late at night, um, really after the canon was done for the day, he would go to the canon offices and sit down with one of their house editors and they would cut the fight scenes. So it's John and a canon, you know, an underpaid, overworked canon editor sitting overnight cutting blood sport and adding really a lot of the slow motion, a lot of things we see in the movie that you would get from you know Hong Kong movies where you know punch one two three times use different takes and different angles over and over for to nail every every blow home, and that was added. And so by late seven eighty eight, in dire financial trouble, they had just had Mass Universe and for all these flops, all these other trouble with having to pay back loans and just not be not having money. They're releasing everything they can to just get some money. Bloodsport was a movie that the new cut, they looked at and said, okay, wow, 
this is this is much better. And it was a hit. Bloodsport made Van Damme. But you have to think, again, I, I'd mentioned earlier, if the chips fell differently for canon in some way, had they released that movie, had they had a better version of it in 86 <laughs> initially, mm-hmm. that could have been the hit. I'm sure if if they had if film had landed like it did earlier on, even if it didn't make the money they needed, they would have signed Van Damme to one of their famous six picture contracts, 10 picture contracts. And again, there's there's a universe somewhere where and kept going into the 90s. But in that because of the strength of this this star, this new star they had in Van Damme. But in this in the same sense, we wouldn't have had the Van Damme who gave us so many studio films like Hard Target and uh, Sudden Death. And <laughs> so it's interesting. It's one of those things. Canon, they, they did launch Van Damme, but they really fumbled <laughs> how they handled it. That could have that could have saved the. They could have saved the. That could have saved the. They could have saved the studios. Uh, mm-hmm. the studios ass. I mean, essentially, because the two Chucks really ran the studio for a while. Chuck Norris and, and uh, <laughs> Charles Bronson, um, who was also in his sixties when he became a star with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. God bless him, man. God bless him. I like. I God bless the boys. I mean, because the Cannon Boys for doing this. Because, I mean, so oh, good lord, man. There's so much amazing thing that's so much amazing lore behind what they did in that decade and change um and it's just a fascinating story it's a fascinating hollywood story of how they were able to rise to, to the top of the indie space and and they were one of the one of the early people to to um kind of create this whole pre-selling idea of like a, give me a poster and i'll throw a picture on it and you give me money before the movie is even made and I'll go make it that and give it to you uh, to be able to finance their movies. If, if I'm not mistaken, correct. They were the kind mm-hmm. of, they were the, the, the forefathers, if you will, of, of yeah. pre-sales and, and can and AFM. They had, yeah, they, that, that was an idea. They took Corman, but they, Corman, they yeah. mastered Corman. it. They mastered the, the, the art of the, they did it very well and they did it at the right time with having so many places to sell their their product too in advance and again that led to so many movies that would never have been made it also led to a lot of movies that weren't made and lead me to wonder what what could have been canon's a company that you google unmade canon movies but if you look through oh, no. any Sp- old spider-man <laughs> yes spider-man, Spider-Man. Oh. 86 spider-man oh yeah <laughs> Like they had, they had a poster for it. It almost got, oh, what yeah. happened? You know, what's the what's the behind the scenes story about Canon Spider Man movie? Because I remember well, Corman. I think Corman's the one that made the Fantastic Four movie, mm-hmm. just so he wouldn't lose the rights and then never released it. Uh, I think it's now been released since then. But um, but Spider Man because that was Marvel was like in bankruptcy. They didn't know what to do. They were selling off the rights. That's why it took us forever to get a Spider Man movie. Wh- what was the what was the story behind that Spider Man movie? Well, Canon. Marvel was in a lot of trouble, and this is something that's hard to imagine nowadays in the environment. But they they were in dire financial straits, and movies were not something that people were putting in. That that was something that still considered the idea of it. But they were shopping the rights to raise money for for their company, and Canon came in. They bought Captain America and Spider Man rights. 
And these were two movies. These were two characters that those were the only two that of the entire Marvel catalog that they thought were um, thought thought had any potential for making money. They they could have had the entire Marvel catalog, like every hero for a song, and they just cherry picked those two. The rest ended up going to New World when New World bought Marvel. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. But right. the Punisher yeah. and yeah, all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But Menachemulan, what what is funny is he bought the rights to Spider-Man, not having never read a Spider-Man comic, not being familiar with the character. He had he was under the impression that Peter Parker was a you know college kid who turned into you know a giant tarantula, like a teen wolf sort of thing. And <laughs> the the earliest Spider-Man ads, the trade ads for it that they put out, because Canon would announce everything immediately as soon as they had any sort of plans in place, was going to be directed by Toby Hooper with a script by Dan O'Bannon, the alien guy. <laughs> right. And it was going to be a horror film. And I think I think what happened was Menachem had conversations with Stan Lee, and Stan Lee was like, you know, this isn't a he, he doesn't turn into a giant spider, right? And his senses came about. Like, I don't think that ever made it past like Menachem's earliest idea. There, there are scripts that exist to the canon Spider-Mans that were never made. But the Spider-Man canon movie was one that was in the pipelines forever that half of the directors who ever worked with canon were attached to at one point or other. It started with Toby Hooper. That was originally going to be the third of the like, three-picture canon deal. Then for a long time, Joe Zito, they spent a lot of money, Joe Zito, the director of Invasion USA, developing that one with, he spent money scouting places, um, just trying out some of the effects and some of the things that they wanted to do. And then finally, towards the end of the Golden Globus era at Canon, Albert Pune, who gave us Cyborg and some really... Genius, genius, (laughs) genius. Genius. Oh, oh, it's just so a, good. Such a great, but that actually, if you want to ask what happened with Spider-Man, the Canon was in very bad financial shape, as I said, in 87, 88. But they had already put some money into developing two movies. They had they were going to shoot these two movies back to back at Dino De Laurentiis's facilities down in the Carolinas. And the movies were going to be Masters of the Universe 2 and Spider-Man. <laughs> Two? How can they do two? This is it before the first one was released? No, this was after. So they still they were still yeah. in all in. They were still all in. They were Got still it. all in on on Masters Universe. And they basically both of these fell apart. Um both, but they had already been doing some work. They've been building sets for Spider-Man. They had shipped all of the costumes from the original Masters Universe to the DG DEG studios to start on that. And Albert Pune's plan was, and this is one of my favorite things about the abandoned Spider-Man, is they were going to shoot all the Peter Parker stuff in the first, I think, two weeks. All the stuff where he's just the nerdy teen teen boy. And then they were going to take a break. They were going to take eight weeks in the middle, and they were going to shoot Mass Universe 2 in the same place with a lot of the same actors and crew. And the Peter Parker actor, who was this... uh, uh, a stuntman at the time, Scott Leva was his name, would have just gone on a training regimen. Like, I don't know if they were going to get him into the gym with Lou Ferrigno or something, and he was just going to get jacked. 
And so over this eight week, like, you know, just hardcore working out, he'd come back and be trim and muscular and he would, that's how they would handle the Spider-Man transformation. Then they would film all the scenes where he's in the Spider-Man costume. So that was, I mean, it's, it's such a canon way of doing it, uh, of, of, of being able to handle a transformation very cheaply just by taking a break and they would shoot those last few weeks. But those, both those, both those deals fell apart. Um, Canon suddenly didn't have the money to shoot them. And Albert Pune comes up with the idea to let's try to recoup what we spent already. Like I will write a movie that uses the sets we built, the half-built sets from Spider-Man and the costumes and everything. And the actors we've already gathered here for Mass no. too. No. Yes. This so is new to, this is news to me. I'm, fa I'm fascinated. Yeah. So these two movies, so Albert Pune wrote Cyborg, basically banged out that script in like kind of a, you know, weekend long fever dream. Makes sense. Look at the canon. They presented it because this was after, after uh, Bloodsport and they still had another deal with Van Damme to do more movies. And so Van Damme picked that script. So they ended up going and shooting uh, Cyborg, a, a script that had been written in record time with with Van Damme using the sets from Spider-Man and a lot of the actors from what, what would have been Master Universe 2. Um, the bad guy, Vincent Klen, who has yeah. the, you know, he was a surfer. He-Man was going to be played, Dolph Lundgren was not coming back for the second one. He was going to be played by Laird Hamilton, the surfer. Laird yeah. Hamilton was going to play Master <sighs> of the Universe? Are you kidding me? He was Dolph's replacement, yes, for He-Man. He's not as not as bulky, not as no. bulky. No, no. But he so his he brought his friends, he brought his entourage, his crew with him, and they were all going to be sort of uh these barbarian, like He-Man's like sidekicks, because they did not have any of like the second masters was going to be a much smaller budget than the first. But they stayed around and they played the bad guys in Cyborg. So Vincent Clint is a surfer. He was one of Laird Hamilton's friends who had come to be, you know, a is, barbarian is buddy. Is he the guy, please remind me, is he one of the bad guys in Point Break? Oh, gosh. He, like, because he has yeah. such a unique look. I remember he was one of the, one of the surfers, the surfer group of the gang that, they, that Keanu was. Keanu and, and Pat, mm -hmm. Patrick says, again, a fight at the beach with like the red hot chili pepper dude and <laughs> Anthony and, 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 yeah. and a few other guys. And this other just big, jacked up, you know, very kind of almost Samoan looking. Mm. He's the, I think he might be the same bad guy. I, I, we'll have to look it up. Yeah, I'll have to look it up. I can't, I can't confirm right now. I, I can tell you he was a, a bad guy in kickboxer too, but. <laughs> well, obviously, I mean, obviously. Yeah. Um, so, so you are telling me that Cyborg, the John claude Madon masterpiece mm -hmm. was originally shot on the sets of the failed Spider-Man Masters of the Universe 2. Yes. Yeah, Cyborg sets. is the phoenix that rose from the ashes of the uh rumbled masters two and spider-man you can see bits of it in there too if you know where to look for oh yeah no now i i mean if, if i had the time to go back and watch cyborg i mean i might one night <laughs> that i'm bored i'll find it and go back and scan it through it but that would be that'd be pretty amazing what i always remember so beautifully about um john claude's movies is that every movie they would find a way to get to split in oh like Cyborg has one of the best splits too. A split right between the two buildings and the thing. It was like, mm. oh my God, it was, oh my God, it was amazing. <laughs> so, 
what as we're talking about you know Canon and what they've done, you know you mentioned Corman. Corman had been doing this since the fifties, mm-hmm. and has continued all this way. Has not stopped. He doesn't have obviously the influence as he used to. He's in his late nineties at this point um, that he did at one point, but he never lost money along the way, and continued his bet because he. It seems to me that he never lost his formula. Mm-hmm. He never tried to be bigger than what he was. He understood that, like you know what, this is my lane. I'm staying in it. And the Cannon boys just couldn't couldn't deal. They had to go outside their lane. They wanted to be bigger than their bridges. Mm-hmm. Cannon, the Golden Globus, they they modeled themselves over. They wanted to be the next major studio. It's one of the things that they always build themselves, the the next major studio. But they modeled themselves really the way they did business, not after studios of the 1980s, but studios of the 30s, 40s, and 50s, those old moguls. Nobody was signing people to 10 movie contracts, these gigantic long canon was because that's that's who Menach and Galan, that's that's who he idolized, those Louis Myers and the these moguls of the golden age. It, it was the studio system. It was the old mm-hmm. school studio system where they owned the actor for for 10 pictures. Mm-hmm. And that's that's what they wanted to be. But 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 Corman was somebody that they admired. Corman was actually somebody that Menach and Galan, who he looked up to he, one of his first jobs was one of was a Corman picture called the young racers back in the sixties. Yeah. And that's a film that Menachem Galan worked on Francis Ford Coppola worked on and Robert town all worked on. Jesus. And this was a B, you know, almost a C level racing movie that that Corman did. And just the people that came out of that film, that, that the talent and the impact on Hollywood in one way or another is just incredible. I could keep talking to you for at least another five hours about this, my friend. Um, <laughs> I, I do I do appreciate uh, you coming on and writing uh, the second <laughs> volume of the Canon Film Guide. Um, this is, I, I think you have opened the door to anybody who ever wants to write a book about Canon and then you shut the door right behind you. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Uh, because there's no, there's why, why there's going to be what three volumes. The third one's coming out soon. Um, how many pages is this? Just over a thousand, a thousand, a thousand pages. This is volume. The first one's about the same, right? So 2000 where I'm assuming the next one's not going to be a hundred pages. So probably not. So <laughs> it is, it is fascinating. We, there's so much I didn't talk about so many movies that we could just go over and over. <laughs> Uh, and I mean, each movie is like a two-hour episode. <laughs> how they did it and how they get yeah. this way, and you know, Barfly was one. Like I was like, mm-hmm. Barfly was made by them, and Runaway Train, and all these, you know, these these amazing films. But my my last question to you, sir, I know it's going to be a very difficult question. Three of your favorite canon films of all time. Three of my favorite. Well, I'm going to pick three very different ones. The easiest one. My go-to is always going to be Revenge of the Ninja by Sam Furstenberg. That's the canon box that burned itself in the back of my brain as a, as a kid and mm-hmm. made me one of the reasons I want to get back to the video store over and over again so I could finally rent that one <laughs> was, was one such movie. I, I love Invasion USA, so I'm sitting in front of an Invasion USA poster right now. But as far as the Chuck Norris movies, this is a movie that is 
big, silly, doesn't make exact sense, but the action is is so, so good. And since you've got Van Damme on, in, on my mind, I, I have to go with Bloodsport. Yeah. It's such a, again, like Van Damme made so many great movies. That's probably still my go-to if I'm going to pick one Van Damme movie just to throw on. All right, just on a side note, if we can go back <laughs> to, to Van Damme lore, besides JCVD, which arguably is one of the best Van Damme films ever because it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's just so in, it's not a normal yeah. Van Damme film. It's a drama, but it's just so beautifully done. I think, it, I think he peaked as a quality film, not fun film, quality mm-hmm. film. I think Time Cop, holds holds probably because it was universal studios it was a big budget i at least in my memory i can't i can't fight about it with anyone because i haven't seen Mm -hmm. it since it probably came out but i remember being like you know this is a really good well-written good story kind of film blood sport has a special place in my heart because i just could not stop watching blood sport i know it so well but in my mind, it lives beautifully. And then the other day I turned it on. I'm like, no, 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 no. I got to turn it off. I can't, other than the action sequences, <laughs> I can't watch the story or the acting because <laughs> it will ruin it for me. You know those movies, like the things mm-hmm. that were perfect in your head. And mm-hmm. then you go back and going, oh, that doesn't age well at all. Mm-hmm. But Kickboxer, Cyborg has a special place in my heart. I mean, no retreat, no surrenders cameo, essentially, that Von Damme did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> was that his first? Was that the first thing released, if I remember? Or is it Black, yeah. Black Eagle was second, if I'm not mistaken? Yeah, these, these movies were ones that came out while Buzzport was sitting on the shelf, which is <laughs> crazy to think that this is just sitting collecting dust in, in, in Cannon's closet while he's doing these movies where he's essentially playing, you know, Soviet bad guys. <laughs> Well, the funny thing is that, and I talked to Sheldon about this, because Sheldon was the one who wrote Bloodsport. Mm-hmm. Uh, he created, and Van Damme, and the movie Bloodsport, basically created Street Fighter and created Mortal Kombat. Mm-hmm. And the fighting games as we know them came because of Bloodsport. I mean, they, mm-hmm. there's even characters yeah. in, in Street <laughs> Fighter that are a little close to, to Bloodsport. So it, mm-hmm. it, it really shifted the 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 zeitgeist it was in the zeitgeist and shifted popular culture in many ways it's fascinating to see what these films that we grew up with what they've done in the course of 20 or 30 years and what they did and how they've affected pop culture and i mean created you know stars of people that in today's world would never in a a van damme would never in a million years rise today not in the way it just too much competition, too much. But without them, would there even be a market for those kind of films? That's the like. Would the, without a Van Damme, is there, without Bloodsport, is there is there above the law? Mm-hmm. It, it, you know, is there a Steven yeah. Seagal at that point? You know what? You know, all the, without the Ninja movies, do we have a Bloodsport? You know, yeah. maybe one day. Who knows? But that's just us talking, my friend. <laughs> I appreciate you coming on the show, man. This has been such so much fun going back back into the archives of my my canon brain and all the the amazing stuff i mean you have now after the canons you have to do one on new world 
Then you have to write a whole series of books on Orion. And then, you know, you got to keep going. And you get a, a trauma. I'm sure Lloyd would be more than happy to talk yeah. to you uh, <laughs> about making a whole series of, I mean, you've got the rest of your life to write all the rest of these books, sir. Yes. Um, but, and, and one last question, man. Why? <laughs> why did you sit down and write two to 3,000 pages on a B level, if not C level, movie studio from the 80s? What was it in you that said, it's not like you want one little book about, ah, ha, ha, ha. You went, I mean, deeper than anyone has ever gone before. Why did you do it? I fell in love with movies at my local video stores back as a youth. And Canon reigned supreme in those places, even if they weren't the best movies or the hottest renters at that point. There were a lot of Canon movies. And when you went to the video store every weekend looking for a certain type of film, that's you encountered that. And, and it was it was ninja movies. It was Canon's ninja movies is what made me fall in love with movies. We're watching Chuck Norris films with my dad when I was probably way too young. Uh, Charles Bronson, things like that. That was they made movies that appealed to me as a young boy, <laughs> I, I should say. And then after learning about them, if if you start to peel back the you know the cover of what what canon was, the stories behind these movies are as crazy as what happens on screen, if not crazier. The how their genesis, how they were made, and how they came to be, and. I wanted to find those stories. I wanted to hear every story I could from as many people that were there as possible and collect them in a place because this is a company that did something that no one else did back then and no one has done really since they, the way exact way they did it. And that's it's a very interesting as somebody who loves film history that fascinated me so much that I couldn't I couldn't look away. I <laughs> just <laughs> Basically, with almost any canon movie, you can't really look away. Uh, I mean, it's kind of like watching a train wreck in a beautiful, wonderful way. It, it's, it's watching these films. So, um, Austin, thank you so much for coming on the show. And thank you for putting this insanity together in, in volumes. I love that there's three volumes. The third one's coming out of this. There's so much stuff. And you've basically made a, a piece of film history that people can come back to uh, in 100 years. And, and they'll go, this didn't mix. This is, this is fiction. This did not happen. This is not real. Hopefully they'll go, they'll go back to this interview as well if they find it on, on whatever YouTube is at that point and look at this interview and they'll go, no, it was real. Look, there's people talking about it. It was a poster behind the guy. Um, we'll see. We'll see what happened. But awesome. Thank you again so much, my friend. And where can people buy this and buy volume one, volume two? And when is volume three coming out? Uh, you can find them anywhere, uh, anywhere books are sold. So your Amazons and your local bookstores can order them. If you got a brick and mortar bookstore, try to support that. That's 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 always great if you're if you're lucky enough to be in that position. People can find me online at I'm at Canon Film Guide on on Twitter and on Facebook, my social media handle, and I'm always sharing more Canon information on there. There are so many things that, as big as these books are, just would not fit. And social media is the place that I can keep that conversation going, answer questions, and just show the weird things and crazy stories that I'm still stumbling across that even I can't believe. And real. by the way, last, last question. Did you ever talk to the boys? Ever? No. Oh, sorry. You broke, you broke, you broke up there for a second. One second. Let me see when you see if your internet kicks back in. Are you there? I'm here. Hear All me? Right, you're, you're frozen. 
Hold on. Let me see when do you kick back in. Oh, no. Just uh, at the end. I just wanted this one last question. Damn oh, it. Come sure, sure. on, internet. There you uh, go. All right. Okay. There okay. You go. All right. So did you, one last question. Did you ever actually speak to the Canon voice? I have not. And not for lack of trying. I have tried so hard to get a hold of Yoram. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. So Yoram, if you are listening, uh, I've sent many, many emails to your assistants. I've sent letters to your office. I would love to talk to you someday. <laughs> That's my dream interview. That's the dream. That's the dream. So, you, so none of the boys you've got to ever get to talk to. So it's all secondhand, all secondhand stuff from like Sam and Shell and all these interviews that you've yes. done over the years, yeah. um, of 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 people who are still alive and and working. And did you ever talk to John Claude or Chuck or any of those? John Claude, John Claude, I've spoken to. So he'll be in volume three. Um, nice. Chuck, no, Chuck is not somebody who looks back very often. Oh, but interesting. Um, he's never really done retrospective interviews or anything. And he, um, sadly, I mean, I don't know that he will, he's never been on a commentary or anything like that. Um, I would love to speak to Chuck. He's another one, but yeah, Jean-Claude, I've talked to Michael Dudikoff in the second one. Um, I've, I've talked to at this point, I think about 80 people who worked for Canon at different points, one point or another. And yeah, I'm still reaching every... If there's anyone who's missing from the books, it's not for lack of trying. I'll, I'll, I'll say that. <laughs> I've reached out to everybody. Well, you've done an amazing job, my friend. So again, thank you so much for putting this together. And I appreciate your time today, my friend. And continue the good work you do. You're doing God's work, sir. You're doing God's work. Thank you. <laughs> thank you, my friend. <laughs> I want to thank Austin so much for coming on the show and sharing his knowledge with all of us about canon lore. Again, guys, if you have not seen the canon films, You've got to go check them out. If you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, including how to get the mammoth volumes of the Canon Film Guide, head over to the show notes at bulletproofscreenwriting.tv forward slash 270. Thank you so much for listening, guys. As always, keep on writing no matter what. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast at bulletproofscreenwriting.tv. 